Welcome to another episode of 35 West. My name is Margarita Seminario. I am the Deputy Director of the Americas Program at CSIS. How professional the Mexican but Are we ready? Oh, I don't reform trends in Argentina. Right. And that's what happened. No role at all in the NAFTA negotiation. Welcome to 35 West. The democratic health of Latin America and the Caribbean is delicate. A first snapshot shows that the condition is aggravated by the effect of the coronavirus pandemic, weak institutions, lack of decent employment and economic opportunities, migration and poor leadership, among other trends and conditions in the region. Today, we will discuss the regional political climate for 2022 with our guest, Father Matthew Carnes, who currently serves as the director of the Center for Latin American Studies at Georgetown University. Father Carnes is a specialist on Latin America. He has conducted extensive field research in Argentina, Peru, Chile, and Bolivia, and has worked on international development projects in Honduras, Mexico, Uruguay, Paraguay, and my native Ecuador. I'm very happy to host you today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Margarita. It's wonderful to be with you. Father Carnes, before we dive into the regional political climate for 2022, May I please ask you to share a little bit about yourself? How did you become interested in Latin America and how does this experience and interest contribute to shaping the work of Georgetown? So, you know, I, I feel very fortunate. I grew up in an area, Northern California, um, that had strong ties uh, with Latin America. So I grew up in a region where I heard Spanish with some regularity, but it wasn't my family's direct experience. So the really transformative experience for me that introduced me to the region was traveling there as a high school student. And this was in the early days of student exchanges and student uh, service projects. And so I went with a group called Amigos de las Americas, um, which is a long-standing group that's worked for a long time in the region. And I had the opportunity to work for a summer in Ecuador and another summer in Paraguay. And the experience I had there was one that stayed with me for my lifetime. On the one hand, in Ecuador, the experience was one of meeting people who had a deep desire for change in their communities, for greater opportunities for their children, and were willing to work really, really hard for that. And they drew on their own cultural heritage and their sense of, of belonging in the world. I felt myself cared for in that community in a way that just kind of marked me at sort of a very deep human level, one that touched on culture, on language, on a sense of shared humanity. But then Paraguay, actually, the next summer, was really the moment that kind of opened my eyes more intellectually to some of the opportunities and challenges of the region. I worked on an immunization project on the eastern edge of Paraguay. This was 1987. So this was right at the end of the Stroessner years, so dictatorship still going on in, in Paraguay. We were right near, um, in fact, the village where I was working sat on a hill that at night could look out and see Itaipu Dam, which at the time was the world's largest hydroelectric dam. And it had been set up, you know, between Paraguay and Brazil, had 12 massive turbines, which we toured before we went out to the village to work. And it was striking because this was generating all this electricity that was lighting up most of Brazil and a small portion of Paraguay, not including the village where I was that was, was in sight of the dam. And I remember as a 17-year-old standing on that hill and looking out and saying, that dam is lit up. This village is within such a distance that I practically myself could run the wire from there to here. Why isn't there wire from there to here? Why does this community go without light at night when others, and especially a huge portion of Brazil, did get light from that dam? And even as a you know, 17-year-old, the question started to go off. You know, 
where does this kind of inequality come from? It doesn't seem to just happen by chance, and it can't just be a technical thing, because I could run the wire. So if it's not technical, well, then it's some sort of economic or political decision. Um, and so I became fascinated from that point on by this question of distribution, of participation, of who gets included, who doesn't get included politically, economically, socially. And in some ways, that's been the intellectual question that drove the whole rest of my career. So eventually, I ended up studying international relations in college, doing a doctorate in political science, working mainly on labor politics as being some one of the key ways that people get included or excluded in their local economies and get a sense of citizenship. So that's been a longstanding kind of question driving my work. But it goes back to those first eye-opening experiences of community and of inequality and lack of inclusion. Now, you know, one other thing I'd like to just mention at this point is it's also powered me through my academic career here at Georgetown University. I have the privilege of serving as the director of our Center for Latin American Studies, which is the intellectual hub of the university. It's where we bring together researchers to address a whole host of issues in the region. But now we're at a really transformative moment at Georgetown University. We've just founded the Georgetown Americas Institute. And this new institute aims to be one of the chief places for convening conversations about Latin America here in Washington, D.C., throughout the United States, and really throughout the Americas. Um, and the Georgetown Americas Institute has four main pillars or four main foci. One is governance and the rule of law, a topic we'll talk about quite a bit today. Um, another is economic growth and inclusion. A third is social and cultural inclusion. And then the fourth is climate change and sustainability and thinking about how the region addresses those, those issues. And you can see in this institute, we're seeking to harness all the resources that a university uniquely has. A university that studies these issues in its economics departments, in its history departments, in its political science departments, but also its languages and cultural um, and its anthropology departments. Um, that has a school of law and can draw on the key legal questions that are coming up. We have a medical school. We're able to draw on our business school where innovation can be set and set in motion. So all of these strengths of our university, we hope, will allow us to address the really pressing cultural issues, economic issues, and political issues in the region today. It's a great opportunity. We've just hired the founding director of the Institute, Alejandro Werner, who served for many years at the Western Hemisphere desk of the IMF. We're delighted to have him joining us literally these days to kick off this new initiative in the university. Father Carnes, that sounds like a fantastic, fantastic initiative. We will make sure to add to the description of the podcast the link so that our audience can find more information. During 2021, like you probably, I sat through many video conferences and repeatedly heard from both scholars and practitioners that people in Latin America have lost their enthusiasm for democracy and that elections simply do not equal democracy. Do you agree with these statements? And what would you say are the main trends we observed in Latin America in 2021? Yes. Yeah, so I think there's a surface truth to both of those statements. I'd probably nuance them a bit, though. So first, I'd say that my experience of the region is there's still a very strong investment in democracy. And especially, I'd say, in the last year, we've seen the investment in democracy as a way of giving voice to diverse groups for diverse groups to be able to speak up and say, these are our needs, this is what we feel society needs to provide for us, or we need to be able to participate in society in this way. You know, democracy isn't just an abstract concept, though. So democracy, I'd say, as people speak up, 
They're asking, is this system delivering on the things it promises? Is it delivering that if we participate more, if we um, advance more, that we will have more of an opportunity to shape the direction of our communities? And sometimes it's not delivering on that front. In fact, people are finding that they work hard and they're not getting ahead or their communities are not represented. And so this has been a space that we see over and over again, people saying, it's not that I don't like democracy, but I'm not liking the results. The results aren't turning out the ways that we would, that we would like and that would really give voice to all these different, um, different groups. Now, I'd also say, you know, to the question of do elections simply, you know, equal democracy or not? I'd say what we'd, what we'd see from our experience in the region is that elections, well, they need to be free, they need to be fair, they need to allow room for alternation in office. And sometimes there can be a, a strand of, of thinking among groups that, well, democracy is only working when my group wins. Well, that's not the truth. Actually, democracy means that sometimes my group wins and sometimes my group loses. And that we can trust that if my group loses this time, the other group will show enough forbearance and respect that they'll want to build a consensus with my group. And likewise, if I can make it into that space in the next round, I can also then show some forbearance and respect for those who are the outgroups in this time. And I'd say that's where we're facing some of the biggest challenges um, in Latin America right now, because I think there's a strong sense that when my group loses, we may not get a chance in the next round. And I think there can be a sense when my group wins, it needs to try to set up the system so that it will never lose. And in fact, we see elected leaders stacking courts, dismissing judges in some cases, trying to dominate legislatures in such a way that they can control the future. And that's really not the kind of democracy that the region needs, one that would allow for ongoing participation by many diverse voices. So I'd say there's, there's a surface truth to these things, but there's a, lot, there's a lot more below the surface on them as well. Let's focus on some key moments in the region in this past year. We want to zoom into both the challenges and some of the bright spots in 2021. What would you say were the two or three most challenging trends that impacted the region in 2021? And why are they relevant? Well, so, you know, I don't think there's a way of talking about 2021 without talking about the pandemic. And the pandemic played a really essential role. First of all, it showed the clear shortcomings of the health uh, services in many, many of the countries in the region. Um, just the inability to deliver the kinds of basic health care that's really needed in the moment of a pandemic. Uh, shortages of hospital beds, shortages of doctors, shortages of medication, and ultimately um, a poor supply of vaccines have been, you know, just writ large in the experience of the region. But I would say tied to that has been an ongoing upswelling of discontent, um, of this discontent that we started to talk about already, where people say the system that had so much promise that was heralded both in terms of its economic promise and its political promise seems to be unable to serve us right at the moment that we most need it. And that's where we've seen mobilization of people in the street, people frustrated with um, a lack of good governance, a lack of transparent governance. We've seen a cyclical replacement of many government ministers, especially health ministers, with the discontent around um, their governance. And so I'd say there's been this clear upswelling of discontent. Maybe just to name two more pieces to that. One, would be in spite of all of that discontent and of the failing of the medical systems, there's been kind of a rapid return to many aspects of life. And this is actually forced by the precariousness of life. And so you can only stay out of work so long and still be able to feed your family. Governments can only enforce lockdowns so long without the economy starting to really go under. And so we've seen a need to, at the risk of people's healths, return to work sometimes as normal. And that's been very concerning. I think it's left people feeling like they're not as valued, their lives aren't as valued as they could be or should be. 
I think it's um, left governments feeling like they're, they're needing to apply measures because they simply don't know how to get forward otherwise. And so this surprising return and, and sort of a return there more than in other parts of the world. So even as Europe continues to lock down, we see Latin America locking down less, or as the United States locks down more, we see Latin America locking down less. And I think it's simply because there's no, there's no clear alternative. Finally, I just do want to mention the really key role of migration um, in this last year. And migration is being driven by some of the climate disasters and climate change dislocations that we see in the region. Migration that's been driven by some of the economic crises, we think of economic and political crises, um, like we see in, in Venezuela and Nicaragua, you know, these movements of people saying, where can we find a future? Where can we find a space? Um, where can we find um, some hope? And so we see this movement of peoples that then is taxed the economic and political structures of their neighbors. So whether that's Colombia receiving so many migrants or the rest of South America, or now the flow of migrants uh, through Central America to the United States. So those I see are sort of the, the key trends of this last year, all of them with this upswelling of frustration and discontent and looking for a better future, but not easily finding it at home. I would also like to ask for your thoughts on some of the more positive moments for the region in 2021, starting with the most recent election in Chile. Does this process signal an uptick in regional democratic health? Is there another example that speaks to optimism in the region in 2021? So, you know, to start with Chile, which you've raised. Um, so Chile, I had the uh, great fortune when I was in college to study abroad there back in 1991. So this was just very shortly after the transition to democracy. And at the time, it was a country that clearly understood the challenges of reestablishing democracy and citizens had a deep ownership of this process of having, of course, voted in the no campaign um, that led to Pinochet stepping down from power and uh, the first democratic government. Um, and then this ongoing process of seeking greater political participation, greater inclusion of peoples through time. And to see the results of that now in a moment in which, let's face it, Chile could have gone another direction, but clearly said that it wanted to recommit to this process that really began in some ways back in 1989 with the referendum or 1988 and then transition to 89, in some ways with the, with the ongoing ownership of the need to be more inclusive as a democracy. And I look at Chile as one of the great owners or caretakers of democracy in the region. And it's striking that when democracy seemed to be under-delivering, you saw the widespread protest that we saw in 2019 that really raised questions about the economic model, about the ways that people could participate. And it gave people a sense that maybe we could create a new agreement among ourselves, a new consensus on a different foundation. It's rare the democracy that can choose publicly through referendum to create a new constitution. Most constitutions are either created right at the moment when an authoritarian government takes power and puts in its own um, constitution, or when a new democracy is founded, you'll have the creation of new, new constitutions. But to do this sort of mid-course and to say, we need to, as a society, do this is quite striking. Chile has taken up that challenge. It's an ambitious challenge. It's a huge challenge. And I think once that challenge was raised, a portion of Chile started to rise to the occasion and said, we can do this. Another portion started to become fearful because what will the new balance of power look like? And that's, that's a deep question. And so you saw people starting to engage that and actually having some fear around that. And I think that's why you saw Cost get the, the majority um, of votes in the first round or plurality of votes in the first round of the election. Ultimately, I think the, the election became a referendum on what kind of democracy does Chile want to have? And it chose to say, we want a democracy that mirrors the process we've already unleashed with rewriting the constitution. 
which is going to be one that will be more inclusive. It may be a bit more chaotic because it's going to mean listening to more and more voices. And it's going to be a little more indeterminate. Um, and we're going to embrace that by having um, Gabriel Boric as the, as the president. You know, as he assumes power and takes on this role, it's interesting to see him moderating his own rhetoric, his own approach to things, really is still standing by the constitutional process, but his respect for and increasing respect for all parties in Chile. I'd say that's typically Chilean to be that, um, that embracing and respectful, but it's also typically democratic is to say that I respect my adversaries, I respect those who have different views from mine, and I want to work together with them. And so I take that as a real harbinger of hope. I really think there is great, great opportunity and Chile can be a real leader in this in the region. I wouldn't wish every country to take on the risk of writing a new constitution, but I do think it can show us some of the, the ways that that might, uh, might happen. You mentioned too, you know, are there other signs of hope? I just very briefly want to point at, you know, I look at the Dominican Republic recently. And Dominican Republic has shown a democratic stability, an ability to move, you know, um, between governments and to keep its eyes focused on an economic model that particularly suits its place in the world right now. And it's recognized that it has this opportunity in terms of nearshoring, in terms of creativity and innovation, and really looking at the markets it can serve, both to its north, to the United States mainly, or to its uh, west and south, to South America and, and Central America. And it's really dynamically serving in the region. And so I think it's, it's giving us an example of a democracy that's well-focused on a kind of economic model that delivers growth and inclusion. And both those are important. You need to have growth. If you don't have growth, it's really hard to then be able to incorporate more people into the model. But you need to then actively incorporate inclusion as well. How is it that you reach out to more and more people so that they can become part of a, a creative, burgeoning middle class? And I think Dominican Republic has done that quite well. Looking ahead at 2022, without a doubt, the coronavirus pandemic will continue to pose challenges for democracies in the region. What are the specific trends to watch in 2022 and how do they impact the regional political climate? So, you know, I think there will be some things that we can't predict right now, but that we know, um, you know, may come along and they are typical of the region. So we know that climate change and just the propensity to climate disasters, whether those are hurricanes, earthquakes, all these sorts of things, and the external force of the pandemic are things that will continue to affect the region really profoundly. We won't know exactly what shape that will take, but surges of the pandemic and uh, climate disasters may be part of the story, and they will lead to some imbalance in the region and may be tied to the trends in migration we've seen um, in recent years. And I do think migration will continue to dominate our thinking in a very strong way. Um, the movement of people and we're talking literally millions of people, foremost from Venezuela, extending all the way down to Chile, um, Brazil, of course. But then as we've seen that movement, more and more of Venezuelans coming north and, and relocating, Haitians that have moved to South America and then coming north as well, um, those fleeing the challenges in, in Nicaragua. We see so many uh, dislocated by violence in Honduras and El Salvador. So migration is going to be a regional issue that each government is going to need to look at in particular ways. I'd love to see the region actually start to think about this more in a regional way and say, how can we better cooperate and collaborate to develop models of economic inclusion? I think it's a place, too, where the United States can play a particularly important role. And finally, I think, you know, we will see the elections that will occur in the region being particularly important. And people will look to every one of those elections as harbingers for the future. So whether that's uh, Colombia that we may talk about later or uh, Brazil, I think we'll see in those places people either saying democracy can deliver and can be inclusive, or democracy seems to be closing off opportunities and make less uh, possible for me to participate. And those, I think, will be very high on our agenda this coming year. What should we look for from civil society actors 
youth labor movements and others in the region? Yeah, I think this is one of the most exciting um, and also one of the most challenging spaces in the region. You know, if you take the long view on civil society in Latin America, it strikes me that if we go back to the 1940s, 50s, 60s, civil society was largely co-opted. It was kind of incorporated into the state, this sort of corporatist model that predominated in many countries and was kind of sort of sustained by many of the import substitution, industrialization model approaches. So, you know, labor had a special place, but a carefully constrained place. The indigenous were largely constrained to being treated as peasants and being sort of uh, rural laborers. Then if you look at the, you know, the, the, the period of the Washington consensus and sort of the neoliberal rise in the region, then you see actually civil society increasingly kind of sidelined and not given an important role. Uh, uh, you start to see labor unions becoming weaker. You start to see participation, especially through parties, being more constrained and limited. Now, I would say, actually, in the 2010s and especially the 2020s now, we see civil society giving rise to important voices that could actually give a new vibrancy to democracy. You know, Tocqueville always says that, you know, civil society is one of the key elements in a vibrant democracy. And I think these voices are helping us see both the strengths and weaknesses of the current economic model, the current political model. And they're calling on societies to be more socially aware, to pay attention to voices that are not heard. And so just to think of a few of these very rapidly and kind of just one after another, um, so youth. Well, gosh, you know, Chile's 2019 mobilization was largely built on the on the shoulders of the 2014 mobilizations by the Pinguinos, the youth um, that called out the schools for being exclusive and not creating a model of inclusion in Chile. One of the biggest leaders from that was Gabriel Boric, who's now the president of the, of the country. Um, so youth sometimes have the clearest vision of when societies are not delivering on the hope that they proclaim, and they're able to name that in a particular way. I think youth will continue to hold uh, the region's feet to the fire in that way. Women. Women have spoken up in incredibly important ways in the last few years in the region. We think about the challenges to femicide and saying that this cannot continue. Um, the Ni Una Menos campaign, which gave so many women a sense of voice and dignity and naming the ways that the political and economic and social and cultural system was uh, dismissive of their interests and, in fact, denigrated them as human beings. Their call for greater reproductive rights, um, this idea of sort of a basic issue of dignity and participation in society. The LGBT community, more and more recognized and speaking out for the rights of marriage equality and being seen as citizens in their own right. I think of in the indigenous people and Afro-descendants um, whose voices are being heard and naming these deep-seated institutionalized racisms that exist um, in the region, the racialized practices in the history, and raising really serious um, issues about how can a more just society be set up, one that recognizes the need to set aright things that have been set wrong for so long. Um, labor is having something of a new moment. I don't think we're going to see it as being a resurgence of labor unions per se, but I do think labor-focused political parties labor-focused elements in political parties. And I'd actually tie this to a group of new entrepreneurs who are speaking out in new ways, and especially giving voice to a new middle class, a new middle class that can be an engine of growth and change and opportunity, um, an engine of political participation. But it also is really vulnerable because once you make your way into the middle class, that's often dependent on the better job you've got. If you lose that job, you can fall out of the middle class. So right at this transformative moment where either that group gets stronger or could fall back and be weaker. I think that'll be hugely important. And then just name two more actors in terms of civil society. Migrants. I think we're going to see the voice of migrants become more and more important simply because it cannot 
forever be ignored. And in fact, we see some countries giving rights to migrants. So Colombia, in a particular way, giving uh, migrants access to their public health system and giving them the rights that are not quite equal to citizens, but are giving them more and more voice. I think we're going to see them be an important civil society actor. And then finally, one group that I don't think we talk about enough in the region are religious actors. Um, religious actors have played such an important role throughout history in giving voice and giving, in a sense, a, an imaginative structure for understanding the meaning of life, for understanding the meaning of participation and inclusion. And when you take out that kind of voice, what well, can then, I think, leave something of a vacuum. The Catholic Church has played a role in this sometimes, both for positive and for negative, both for inclusion and for exclusion. Now evangelical churches play an important role in that way too. And it can't simply be in these coming years that churches are kind of competing for members. It really needs that they need to help build up the political model, the democratic model, this opportunity for inclusion in the region. And I think of just a few actors that have been such important moral centers um, in the region. You know, I think of Archbishop, uh, now Saint, Oscar Romero, who by speaking out in El Salvador, in a sense speaking truth to power, was able to help contribute to the transformation of, of Salvadoran society. It took a number of years after his death. But to be a moral actor that can give a moral compass to society. Bishop Desmond Tutu, who just died in South Africa, did the same thing there. And I really hope that we'll see religious actors able to take this role. If they do it like Romero, or if they do it like Tutu, they won't always be popular, but they will help give society a sense of what do we want to strive for? What do we want to live for? How do we, and especially can they give voice as uh, Romero said that he did, to be a voice for the voiceless? Can they do that in a way that allows actors to be included? So I actually think this is one of the most important and exciting elements in the region is this idea of civil society and the roles it can play moving forward. There are several key presidential elections in 2022. This will be powerful signals of the region's commitment to democracy and the health of its electoral institutions. Colombia has seen massive civil unrest in this past year. How should we view these movements in the context of the upcoming presidential election? So, you know, Colombia, I would say, has embraced the real challenge of this moment coming out of its uh, peace accords which is to try to reorient its society in many of the ways that democracy and the capitalist economic model have promised. And it's finding it's really hard to deliver. And that's why we see these, these moments of civil unrest as people say, we don't feel like we're, we're seeing the change that we'd like to see. And I think we're going to see the presidential candidates really need to grapple with how committed are we to trying to see this through in a way that is sufficient to live up to people's high expectations. And can they give at least enough progress that people can have confidence that in the next round it will keep getting better and better? So I think people have a certain patience, but Colombia and each of these each of these elections will contribute to people's sense that, oh, democracy is making progress or it isn't. And if it isn't, then I think people do look for other alternatives. Father Carnes, what role can international organizations like, let's say, the Organization of American States play in promoting democratic norms? Are there any countries that could play a greater leadership role in this respect within these organizations? So, you know, I think the international organizations in the region have an important role, an important role in convening conversations, an important role of articulating clear standards of what do we mean by democracy, what do we mean by participation. But ultimately, their strength rests on their respect for the sovereignty of each country as well. So they can't impose, they don't have the ability to force the hand of governments 
Um, I think, again, power is strongest when it's uh, not either not used or used only um, in the ways that it uh, inspires compliance and, and uh, leads to a desire to comply. So I think actually to the extent that the OAS and, uh, and the American Development Bank and other organizations can really show to regional actors that it's to their benefit to be democracies. It's to their benefit to participate in this company and, and neighborhood of states that have committed themselves to listening to their citizens, to building opportunity for their citizens, then they will have greater effect. And, you know, I think Chile and uh, Dominican Republic that I've named before can be real leaders in this in really saying, look at what we've achieved by listening to our citizens. And I think in particular of Chile at this moment, they can say, you know, you don't need to be afraid of your citizens. You don't need to be afraid of the vote they may express. You don't need to be afraid of the direction that uh, civil society may take you. In fact, by listening, you can only become stronger. And so I think those regional actors, by their example, can really inspire others to uh, live greater democracy. How can the U.S. engage productively with the region, especially with its upcoming role as host of the 2022 Summit of the Americas? So, you know, it strikes me that the United States, again, given its outsized role in the region, first and foremost needs to show respect for, for the sovereignty of the countries in the region and to respect the paths that they themselves are on and to show the same kind of forbearance that Chile has shown, that, you know, respect your citizens to let the nations respect their citizens in making the choices that they will make. And it's not going to be cookie cutter. Not every country is going to do the same things under their own democracies. Having said that, the United States can do a lot to support democratic processes It can offer support for um, electoral observation. It can offer so support for the formation of political parties across the spectrum and training ground for how do you form parties, how do you participate, training for young leaders, opportunities for exchange for students to come. I'd say it can also really incentivize investment in the region because the region's growth is only to the United States' benefit. To the extent that the region grows, Well, that actually goes a long way in, in terms of addressing a lot of the issues around migration. So to the extent that people can feel opportunities in their homes, can feel like they have a possibility of participating and seeing their own family's futures improve, that's something that is very inspiring to them and make movement through migration much, much less likely. Now, you mentioned in particular some of the Americas. I mean, we at Georgetown are particularly excited about that, and we hope to actually build a partner in that in some way. Because we think that some of the Americas held here in Washington, here in the United States, offers an opportunity to convene deep conversations about the region, to draw on the strengths of universities, uh, Georgetown among them, and bringing together people that think deeply about questions of democracy, of economic innovation, of entrepreneurship, of inclusion, of social and cultural respect and inclusion as well. We can draw on the strengths we have here to help lead conversations, convoke conversations so that actors from the region can go home, able to implement, based on their own creativity and their own sense of the, of the region, the best responses there. So we think we can be a space to bring people together in a really, really important way, sharing some of our experience here, even sharing some of our experience of grappling with some of the deepest and hardest issues um, in the region. You know, here at Georgetown, over the last several years, we've been grappling with our own history of connection to the institution of slavery here in the United States. And that's forced us to look really deeply at our own practices inside the university. Where do we come from? How do we act today? Who do we want to be tomorrow? If we could convoke conversations that help the region to do that as well and allow actors to really critically look at themselves and then think ahead to where they want to be, we would really do something important. I think the United States could do that as well in its invitation to the leaders of the region to assemble here. 
Father Carnes, is there something else you would like to share with our audience? Anything that we did not cover? Yeah, I just want to return to one point that I've raised a couple times, and truly that idea of the emerging middle class and of civil society. To me, that's the real source of dynamism. It's the real promise of the region. And you know, it's something that really sets Latin America apart. No region has a middle class that is growing as quickly as that of, of Latin America. And so that should be of interest to people that want to market to Latin America. You should see investors, you know, rushing there. It should be of interest to people that want to support democracy because we know democracies are often built through their middle classes and people who can participate and can give voice to their needs. It should be a place that people that are interested in seeing social change and seeing the artistic and cultural expression that just blossoms forth from that kind of middle class want to observe. So I see tremendous hope in the region and I see it really in the faces of the people, and especially as they will strive after those things that first uh, inspired me about the region, um, striving for a better future, striving for communities that can be respected and can have a place. I think there is so much promise there, and I really look forward to seeing how that will play out in 2022. Thank you for joining us in 35 West. We appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. And thank you. For you, thank you again for joining. Stay tuned for the next episode of 35 West.